you are a fan of putting things on the ballot. If SB 50 becomes law, would you file an initiative to repeal it? I don't know that right now. That's too speculative. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter for Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon from the Los Angeles Times. And today, Thursday, May 2nd, we talk about and complain about how busy our week was last week. It was so busy. <laughs> it was one of the busier weeks I've had. Yeah, because just a lot happened and a lot of changes. And now we're sort of speeding to see the contours, if you will, of what the I will. The, the legislation, housing legislation this year is going to look like. Big so, stuff. Two big news items that both Liam and I were in attendance for, at least partially, last week. Uh, one was SB 50, Senator Weiner's, Senator Scott Weiner's bill to upzone around public transit, passed out of a crucial committee and had some major changes that allowed it to pass. We'll be talking about that in great detail. And then some tenant legislation, some pro-tenant legislation made it forward, but some pro-tenant legislation did not. Did not. And we have we have two really good guests. Yes. So we have uh, State Senator Nancy Skinner, a Democrat from Berkeley. She is a co-author of uh, Senate Bill 50. And I, I'd say the biggest legislative advocate aside from uh, Scott Wiener, right? Yes. And has some of her own legislation, Indeed. which is very aggressive in trying to cure the state's housing crisis. And some, and uh, as, in addition to the supply stuff, has some tenant legislation as well. And we'll also be talking with Michael Weinstein, head of the LA-based AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who has lobbied intensely and controversially against SB 50 and was the main backer of the rent control initiative that failed last year. Very quickly, some, some special programming notes. The immediate future of the podcast, the schedule might be thrown off a little bit i will be having knee surgery early next week i'll have to take some time off work sad yes sad exclamation point Mm -hmm. and then um you know i really do try to avoid disrupting the podcast or just taking off time from work generally um but you know knee surgery you can't really avoid that's right um liam you took some time off recently it must have been an equally compelling reason i saw a matinee of hamilton in san francisco and how how was that it was magical (laughs) We were really, not- so I, I, you know, I've been reluctant to talk about the Hamilton because I just thought it was not really a thing I'd be into. But my my girlfriend won the Hamilton lottery, and oh, uh, and so we we went on a Wednesday, and mm-hmm. it was fantastic. So took a full day off work. Took a full day off, and it was great. Everything was wonderful. We had a nice little dinner afterwards. Yeah. I just really, I recommend everybody going to see Hamilton, especially on a matinee. It was lovely. Which of the Democratic primary candidates' mailing list are you automatically? attitude when you buy a Hamilton ticket? I think all of them. Where would you rank Lin-Manuel Miranda in terms of authentic East Coast hip-hop, which you are a fan of? Uh, yeah. Top um, five MC? <laughs> all right. Um, let's move on to... Well, let me plug my the one thing I'm oh, doing. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so one plug uh, for me, um, I'll be returning to San Francisco uh, the end of next week. I'm going to be moderating a really interesting uh, event with Bay Area mayors at uh, a, a program put on by ULI San Francisco. Uh, this will be with uh, Sam Licardo of San Jose, Libby Schaff of Oakland, Daryl Steinberg of Sacramento, and Michael Tubbs of Stockton. Uh, a really good look, uh, hopefully, at uh, housing through the lens of uh, some big Bay Area mayors. Yeah, it's a good panel. Now, to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, it is... The Avocado of the Fortnite. And uh, beyond Liam taking a full day off to go see Hamilton, 
something even more absurd um, was <laughs> dropped in California housing circles. Um, an excellent piece of journalism. It's a wonderful story from uh, Katie Murphy and Caitlin Bartley in the San Jose Mercury News, uh, uh, a uh, really interactive series uh, called The Price We Pay, which looked at changes in rental uh, rental prices and how housing costs and how that affected people in uh, zip codes and neighborhoods all across the area. And working with Zillow, which just shout out to Zillow in terms of their willingness to work with reporters on projects. I've worked with them on a couple data projects now, and they are great to work with. I uh, It's out of what? Oh, I'm just, we should get paid for this, but no, <laughs> no, that is not, that's not it. There are, there are private data firms that are not good to work with. Right. And there are private data firms that offer you a helping hand. Yes. And Zillow is, has, Zillow has done that multiple times. Sure. For and, me and for uh, Katie and Caitlin. And they were helpful on my uh, Prop 13 project last year exactly. as well. Exactly. Yes. I think they deserve credit for yes. that. Yes. Two thumbs up for Zillow. <sighs> All right. Um, anyway, I just wanted to isolate a couple avocado very absurd, stylized data points that Katie and Caitlin uh, brought up in their reporting. In 2012, 70% of Bay Area neighborhoods had average rents that were affordable to families making $100,000. By 2018, it's six years it's yeah. that fast. That's, That's what jumped out to me the yeah, most. Just but how quick this was. I know. Yeah. By 2018, 28% of Bay Area neighborhoods were affordable to families making $100,000. So in a six-year span, it drops that much. And, you know, really good human stories. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, I remember the, the, the good section on, on Vallejo, what they were sort of referring to as one of the last, last one of, if not the only last affordable sections of of the Bay Area and yeah. how pressures were now coming to that city, which, you know, I mean, not too long ago, I mean, certainly within the, the decade that I've been in California, that was a bankrupt city and bankruptcy uh, seen as, you know, uh, one of the one of the most difficult places in the entire state. And, and, and now, you know, it's uh, facing pressures from from rising housing costs, costs as well. Yeah, that's right. And mm-hmm. had foreclosure issues. That's right. Absolutely. It, yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's a very rapid turnaround. Anyway, we highly recommend um, this story. Check it out. Um, it's all over the San Jose Mercury News website. It's pretty easy to find. As we mentioned last week, big week um, for both tenant legislation and SB 50. We're going to start with what happened with SB 50. And I've devised yet another gimmick to explain some of the politics and policy behind the new SB 50. Liam, what's the gimmick? It's uh, Mythbusters. Ooh. That was more haunting, I think, than I intended it to be. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we're going to say yeah. some things, and we're going to say whether they were myth, mostly myth, fact, or mostly fact about changes to both SB50 and to some of the tenant uh, issues. And we'll be getting into some of the scene setting, uh, some of the reasons why all this stuff that we're talking about was important, why last week was a big, big week, through the context of this very uh, haunting gimmick. Okay, and I'll just throw this wrinkle at you now. Yeah. I think we should say our answers to the statements at the same time. And perhaps that might produce either complete consensus or debate. Sure, okay. Okay, you ready? Yes. Okay. Myth or fact number one, and this is by far the most self-serving of all Mm -hmm. the myths or facts here. Mm -hmm. The media and the public at large was given adequate notice of the changes to SB 50 Before and during the bill's hearing. Myth. Myth. Oh, we should have said it at the same time. Well, I mean, I was ready to say things, and then you're pausing. 
So, yeah. So, you know, we're in this hearing room uh, and we knew this was going to be a, a sort of a, a difficult uh, moment for the bill because the leader of this uh, Senate Governor and Finance Committee, committee Senator Mike McGuire of uh, uh, Marin County and other Northern California areas, uh, was not a fan of the bill. And so we knew there was sort of to get advanced, advanced out of his committee, uh, there had to be some sort of deal between Senator Weiner and Senator McGuire. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that there was, and we'll be getting into some of the details of that, but the, 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 the changes uh, were sort of read aloud weirdly during the during the hearing itself. And so the public didn't really have much of an, a, a, a way to really follow the hearing in a comprehensive way to understand what some of the changes to the bill were. Um, and so it is not the rarest thing no, at the Capitol. No, that's what I was going to say. It yeah, happens. Not the rarest thing for, at the Capitol for this to occur, but it is certainly not the most tr- transparent way to do things. And I think you, you could compound that with, you know, it took more than a week for the changes that were announced uh, at this hearing to actually make them make their way into print. Mm-hmm. Um, that is rarer than what usually happens. Um, and so really not a great way to help people understand what's uh, what was going on with the bill. Yes, and could lead to inaccurate reporting, especially for reporters who are not as well-versed in the incredibly complicated nuances of California housing policy as others. Yeah, well, and 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 as the bill itself becomes more complicated, right? Yes, so, that's, yeah. that's exactly Which right. is certainly what happened uh, last week. That's exactly right. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on to fact or myth number two, and let's let's be more coordinated in this one. Okay, myth, mostly myth, fact, mostly fact. Marin County got off easy in the new version of SB fifty. I'm interested here. Okay, you ready? Three, two, one. Mostly fact. Mostly myth. Here we go. All right. Wow. Okay. Here we go. Go ahead. So um, the, the, the top line part of this deal was that smaller counties in the state, those with 600,000 population and below, got very different rules than the larger counties. That's right. And 600,000, why? I don't know. So we were talking yeah. about this earlier, yeah. and we, we are at a loss for what is the substantive policy distinction. Right. Uh, between a county of over 600,000 and a county of under 600,000 because a county under 600,000 does not necessarily mean a rural or small county. Sure. It is smaller. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But there's a great variety of counties. Yes. That fit that definition. Sure. So uh, included, there be, certainly there's a political reason for that, uh, and yes. that is uh, Senator McGuire represents Marin and Sonoma and smaller counties. And so the communities that he did not want to see um, affected as greatly, uh, he, that was the political deal that was carved out. So it's interesting that you use the word carve out. Do you consider this a carve out? <sighs> I really throw my words back at me. Um, <laughs> so... Um, I, well, I, I'll, I, I'll tell you why. Yeah. In, and this is very practical. Yeah. In the lead of what I was writing. Yeah. Immediately after SB 50. Yeah. I did not have the word the word carve out in the lead because yeah. I thought carve out was more too strong. My, my my take is that these are special rules that are once again because someone in Marin has some some juice um, able to get uh, a, a different deal than everybody else. So I completely agree with that. The part of this that I don't agree with is the the got off easy yeah part yeah so yeah it, it is I think without question despite some protestations on Twitter yeah there is less aggressive density requirements of counties under six hundred thousand and that is 
mostly because the chair of this committee was from a county of less than 600,000. So this basically says when you have cities over 50,000, so sort of uh, mid-sized cities uh, in within these smaller counties, if they're within a half mile of transit, they get to keep their height limits to just bumped up one story. Um, and uh, uh, there's some also waivers in some of the even larger cities there for parking minimums. The other big break that counties like Marin County got was this provision for increasing density in job-rich communities, not necessarily near transit doesn't apply to them. Yeah, so that rule says uh, in these predominantly single-family areas, Silicon Valley, I think, is a really good uh, example of this. Uh, there's unlimited density uh, that would be allowed in these areas. Uh, height requirements still apply, and so I'm not sure how much more you're getting than fourplexes, but you could be getting more than fourplexes in some of these areas. Yes. Um, so again, that applies to some counties, does not apply to others. And then that county distinction brings us to some interesting comparisons to cities that you might think are similar at face value, um, but will be treated differently um, under this version of SB 50. Yeah, interesting is a word to use. Um, I might say weird. It's just Some of this is strange, right? So let's take L.A. along the coast. Um, Manhattan Beach is a city under, under 50,000. Uh, a lot of it is in the coastal zone, uh, and there's no changes at all to that city now. Um, uh, uh, for the parts that are in the coastal zone, that's different than what would have happened before. Whereas next door, Redondo Beach, right? Uh, that is the infield parcels in its coastal zone are affected by SB 50. So a little bit larger city, um, literally next to each other on the coast in LA, different rules. Yeah. And same regional job and housing market, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Literally abutting each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, you, you've another, isolated some other examples. Yeah, too. another weird comparison. Uh, Mill Valley, a city in Marin County, again a county with small, less than six hundred thousand people. Mill Valley itself is fourteen thousand people. The city median household income one hundred forty-one thousand, so rich, right? Uh, its job-rich areas are not affected um, by this bill. Compare that with, uh, or contrast that rather, with Orinda, a city in Contra Costa, a county over 600,000. Orinda has about 20,000 people, so, you know, larger but not like crazy larger. Um, median household income of uh, 186,000, so also pretty wealthy. The job-rich areas uh, there are affected, and that's only because of the county that these two cities are located in. I will explain why I said that this was mostly myth. Um, in a more articulate manner, manner once we get to the next myth or fact, because this is part of my argument. Okay. And I, I should say before we do this, yeah. we haven't seen any modeling of how many units the new uh, SB50 will produce. We haven't seen any mapping right. of what exactly is going to be included in SB50. And uh, we need to see more of that to really have a, be able to drill down on exactly what the bill is going exactly. to do, so, especially as it's become more and more complicated. Exactly. So yeah. all of our analysis should be taken with that type of caveat. But the reason I said mostly myth to the uh, Marin statement was because of this following statement. The new SB 50 effectively eliminates single-family-only zoning in California. Myth, mostly myth, fact, mostly fact. Three, two, one. Mostly, mostly fact. fact. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're in agreement on that one. Yeah. A new provision in the bill would allow by-right approval of duplexes, triplexes, yes, I'm pronouncing it that way, and fourplexes in vast swaths of the state, regardless of their proximity to transit. 
Yeah, and in areas of state that are now only reserved for single-family homes. Exactly. Right. So it is similar to what Minneapolis did, eliminating single-family uh, only zoning in a relatively small city compared to some California cities in the Midwest. And I do think it is – that's a big deal. I, I think it's a big deal. It's interesting that it, it has not been framed in that way yeah. pretty yet, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it is a big deal, but we should make clear that there are some really significant caveats to what you could actually build. And I think it may be part yes. of the reason why it's not a big deal uh, or not seen as such a big deal to this point. So, for yes. instance, to the, for this to apply, uh, you can't demolish you a single-family house. It. Yes. Right? It has to be either on vacant land or with, or with some renovations, maybe subdividing that. Property. Yes. So that's a big, a big change. It is. Yeah. And the question that I have that I've yet to answer that I want to get answered is okay, so how are more how are most fourplexes made? Are right. they are do you typically have to demolish and then build something new, or can you do a lot through renovations? And that's a yeah. key question here. Yeah, and I don't I also don't know that that answer yes. yet. And that's important. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah. And so Read us <laughs> in the we'll, future. We'll get that answer yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. It, nevertheless, a significant policy change. If if anything, just for the precedent of it, right? Yeah, I mean, at the le- it basically says, you know, um, uh, we have to allow, in the, as a state, a minimum of uh, four houses on land, uh, and that's on residential land, and that's that's a big deal. So going into this hearing, we knew that SB fifty was going to get watered down in some way. There, yeah. there was no avoiding that. Right. So you have to, you know, you have to weigh, okay, what did Scott Wiener get um, versus what were the other possibilities that you could have seen happening? I, I would not have been shocked to see some sort of carve out for like entirely. Just small exactly. small cities entirely or small exactly. communities entirely just untouched by this. Yes. Um, that would have been... Um, a much deeper cut into what the bill was trying to do, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And adding this is, again, as we just said, not a small thing. This was not in the original version of SB 50, and adding this this way is is not a small thing. Um, okay, let's move on now to another uh, myth or fact. This one we can resolve pretty quickly. You've seen this a lot in some of the arguments against SB 50. Myth, mostly myth, fact, mostly fact. SB 50 actually allows taller buildings than five stories around public transit. Three, two, one. Mostly fact. Well, it's it's true. We're we're on the the same page here. The key is you can only go above five stories if you include more affordable units. So units reserved for low and or, I believe, moderate income families, I think, um, than you otherwise would have. So that, that is the only thing that's going to trigger the higher than... Five stories. There's a separate state law that you could add, would be additive to this one. Yes, it's called the density bonus. Yeah. So our last myth or fact here about SB 50. SB 50 will become law without becoming significantly more watered down. So uh, three, two, one. I don't know. See, I didn't say anything. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're both cheating on this one. Uh, but I think that that's, I think that that's, I, I honestly, that's like, that's not even like I'm trying to like hide my, you know, what my truth, my, as an objective journalist, what I truly feel about this. I, I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. There's so many variables that are uh, at play here, and we could t- maybe talk about them. 
One is, um, you know, you heard some conversation from some of the other uh, uh, senators uh, on this committee saying, look, I don't love this bill, but I'm going to advance it because I feel like this needs to be part of a package of bills similar to what was done two years ago. And so basically the signal being I will only vote for Senate Bill 50 or something like it if there's other bills that adds money or add, does something else to ensure that uh, there's, um, you know, more uh, a robust uh, and complete uh, a chomp at the housing argument. Mm-hmm. And so does that package come together? I don't I don't know. Um, but my view is that the bill doesn't stand much of a chance, at least anywhere close to its current form, unless something like that package were to, were to come together. Okay. And let's yeah. let's walk through just kind of very practically what the remaining legislative steps would be for SB 50. So it's got one more committee it needs to go through. In the Senate. In the Senate. Yeah. It Then it's got to get a Senate floor vote. So there's 40 legislators in the Senate. It's going to need 21 votes. By the end of this month. That's by the, the deadline. Exactly. By the end of this month. Talking with proponents of SB 50, I think it's fair to characterize their position that they feel pretty confident that they can get the bill as it is mostly through the Senate. Yeah. Um, then it moves to the Assembly. And I think that is where there is more uncertainty about what happens with the bill. So, yeah. So, um uh, and if it gets in the assembly, the things that would affect it, as I mentioned before, the package, um, also the position and stances of legislative leadership and Governor Gavin Newsom, there's only a package if those folks are on board. Um, and when when those folks are on board, they can decide, oh, OK, legislator X, I know you may not love this, but because we're working towards a package or because this is now a priority for us, you don't touch it. Um, and that's the way this works, yes. right? Uh, and so I think those two things are the are the way that you uh, uh, the only way, again, in my view, that this were to advance in some sort of form reasonable to, to reasonably close to what it is now. And as part of that package that you're describing, do you envision tenant bills being being part of it? Yeah, I don't think you. I don't think, especially given the statements of the governor, um, put it package of, of rent stabilization bills on my desk. I don't think that that without some tenant moves towards um, tenant protections that uh, that has to, I think that, that has to be part of a, a larger package. Here. I think the crucial question then is what type of tenant protections we're Absolutely. talking about, which Absolutely. is a perfect segue into yeah. our second myth or fact segment, which focuses on the pro tenant legislation <laughs> that both lived and died last week. We're going to kick it off right here. In another, I like kicking it off with a very self-serving behind the curtains. How yeah. curmudgeonly we both really are. Yes, as if that's not adequately represented on the podcast. <laughs> um, myth or fact? There was adequate seating for media at the rent control hearing. Oh man, myth, myth and a half. It would have been more emphatic if we both said it loud at the same time. Ah. But yes, beyond a myth. Beyond a myth. So why don't you do some scene setting for us there, and then our interaction before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were like my knee hurts. I have to get out of here. Um, so yeah, this, that was pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, so like it's funny. You know, the legislature is a funny place. Uh, there are big rooms where you could have committee hearings. There are, and there are small rooms like last year's like, like last uh, year. rent control hearing. Right, and so this year, for whatever reason, uh, intentional or not, uh, it was in the small room, and that meant with uh, literally hundreds of people who were there to testify, they had to do this in shifts. So they had people come in and say, "I like this bill or I hate it," and then run it, then run them out, and then run another fifty or so people back in, and so that 
made things longer. And certainly, uh, as it should be, the public was prioritized uh, over the media when it came to seating. Um, and they got seats and we uh, we able-bodied, at least most of us able-bodied media members were, were able to stand towards the side. Let's move on to the next myth, mostly myth, fact, mostly fact. We won't see real rent control leg- legislation this year. You ready? Oh, man. Yeah. Three, two, one. Mostly, Mostly fact. fact. Yeah, and I, I'm hanging my position on the definition of rent control yes. versus, say, stabilization, rent cap, rent gouging, anything yes, you want to do. I, but yeah. I think that it's an impo- it is not a meaningless distinction. Yeah. yeah. So let's get into what happened with Richard Bloom's bill. Yeah. So there are uh, three principal bills that are part of this sort of tenant protection package. Uh, one from uh, Assemblyman Rob Bonta, which we had on the pot. He we had him on the podcast last week. That would say that says you have to provide give someone a reason if you're going to evict them called Just Cause. Uh, second one is from Assemblyman David Chu. Uh, this is a bill that says um, you have to, uh, you cannot increase rents on people uh, uh, higher than inflation plus 5% yeah, uh, which, every, every which year. Yeah, recently has averaged out to about 7.5%, depending on where you live in California. Yeah, and that's the bill that was heard last week that, that we just complained about, uh, the seating. Um, and then the third bill is, was, if you will, uh, AB 36 from Assemblyman Richard Bloom of Santa Monica. And this would have um, allowed local governments to change uh, uh, their rent control rules to be more um, – uh, strong than they are now under the regi- the Costa Hawkins regime that we've discussed ad nauseum. So what happened the night before rent control was supposed to be heard in the state legislature? They decided it wasn't going to be heard. So walk me through that exactly. Yeah. So uh, there was a tweet late at night from Assemblyman Richard Bloom, the author uh, of this bill. And uh, he said, ah, well, I'm uh, going to take this back to the Rules Committee, which basically means I'm going to withdraw this. And, uh, I don't, uh, you know, it means you don't if you don't if you make that decision, that means you don't have the votes to make it to, to be able to get it through. And how is this bill different than um, either Prop 10, the initiative that would have repealed Costa Hawkins or Bloom's bill from last year? Right. So those both of those things would have gotten rid of Costa Hawkins entirely. Uh, this bill would have said, no, local governments, you would be allowed to do rent control, but under a few conditions. Uh, most notably, uh, it said that uh, you could only do it on apartments that were um, uh, 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 older than 20 years. So that does change from Costa Hawkins, which said 1995, right? So this would allow you to have it on more recently built properties. Uh, but would the aim is to sort of try to keep it away from uh, affect new construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is it said that there would be a carve out for those who owned uh, 10 or fewer uh, properties. That's right. Um, and even with those provisions, did not get a vote. Nope. Um, and so what is the future of that type of legislation? Why did why did you say mostly fact and I agreed? Uh, you know, I think that there's still some I mean, so the, now the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, we'll get, certainly get into this in the interview, um, has filed for an initiative officially uh, to potentially put a stronger version than what we just said of rent control uh, on the 2020 ballot. And so that is leveraged now, the same as it was last year. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that, and that puts, you know, Weinstein uh, firmly in a negotiating position uh, for this effort. And so we'll sort of see if that means anything this year. So procedurally, it could always be revived in one way or another. Yeah. 
part of the equation is whether Governor Newsom insists that something along the lines of Bloom's bill, more substantive Costa Hawkins reform, gets to his desk. Now, he was not very specific in what he outlined as the renter protection package that he called on legislators to send his way earlier this year. Right. Um, but that's, along with the Weinstein leverage, that's part of the equation, too. So getting to that question, the Newsom question, here's another myth or fact. Myth or fact, Governor Newsom leaned on legislators to pass Costa Hawkins reform. Three, two, one. Mostly myth? Yeah, I'm going to go mostly mostly myth, too, with with the caveat, like, there's always the possibility that there actually were conversations that we were not aware of, which is always the case. But there was some interesting reporting. A snit, if you will. Um, A snit? A snit. Yeah. What's a snit? A snit's like a low-level conflict. A little snit. A snit? Yeah, you never heard this word? Obviously, I haven't heard this word. Snit. Huh. Okay. So, um, uh, a bunch of tenant advocates decide to occupy uh, Governor Newsom's office uh, the night before the vote was supposed to happen on Bloom's bill, or all these, or Bloom's bill and Chu's bill. And uh, ultimately, the the uh, governor's chief of staff, Ann O'Leary, comes out and hears them out, and basically says, well, not basically says, yeah, the governor's leaned on all these committee members to get get both of these bills out of committee tomorrow. However, uh, hours later. Uh, Bloom's bill is shelved, and uh, thanks to some uh, uh, correct reporting by some of our uh, colleagues in the Capitol, yeah, it's Jeremy uh, Jeremy White, Jeremy White at, at, at Politico. Politico, yeah, um, you know, it turns out that O'Leary had to circle back and call uh, legislators on that committee and apologize for uh, uh, sort of making it sound like the governor had actually done more than he did to lean on them and was sort of throwing it back on them when, in fact, it's not exactly what had happened. Okay, let's talk about the bill that actually was heard and did pass, make it out of committee, David Chu's anti-rent gouging bill. Myth or fact, this anti-rent gouging bill will help a lot of renters. I made these hard. This is hard, yeah. You ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. Mostly, Mostly fact. Uh... <laughs> so I think there's a there's an incomplete element here yeah, yeah. for both of us. Yes. Do you want to go first or? Yeah, I said because a lot because you look at and I think you've ran these numbers closer than I have so far. Uh, so I don't. I, I you know I not many not a lot of a, a tremendous amount of people had rent increases higher than this would, yes. would have been allowed. Um, and there's some evidence. Um, that this sort of in some ways creates a perverse incentive for landlords to actually raise rents to the cap rather than uh, 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 do something that uh, where they think, oh, I can increase it whatever I want. So why, you know, why worry about doing it this year? Right. Yeah. So there's that being said, I do think that there is a peace of mind, though, if this were to pass, that you're not going to face a rent increase over a, a certain percentage that while high. Uh, you know, CPI plus five or inflation plus five percent is not like unmanageable twenty percent, where you're basically no matter who you are going to be put out on the street, right? Yeah, I, I think that I think our analysis is actually fairly similar, and we're yeah. just kind of reflecting the uncertainty here. Yeah, you can actually empirically answer this question if you had access to the right data, and I think some of that data will be. Um, coming out shortly, which is what is the actual percentage of 
renters that saw a rent increase over the amount, over this 5% plus CPI um, over the last two years, five years, year over year. Yeah. That data is not easily publicly available. Some of that you can get at with proprietary landlord data. And I think the Turner Center will be coming out with something along those lines shortly. And I think the answer is going to be, yeah, there actually is a decent number of households that would have benefited from this cap. Um, the other uncertainty here is what happens to the bill going forward. Yeah, I think my overriding takeaway, you might have something different, but my overriding takeaway was um, basically the lawmakers that said yes on this wanted to be done with it. Um, they wanted to say, th- if we vote for something like this, we don't want to have these conversations about really about tenant bills anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and so they didn't want to, you know, put their necks out on the line in favor of this stuff to, to, to face another initiative uh, in 2020 or to face sort of continued calls for something stronger than what they would be putting themselves in a line for. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely part of it. I think the other the other thing that I glean from, um, let's say, Sharon Quirk-Silva, uh, Democrat from Orange County, Todd Gloria, Democrat from San Diego, is that the percentage, that percentage cap might be a little too tight. They're supportive maybe of the idea, but they have some concerns about whether the cap itself might be a little too tight. I also thought it was noteworthy that the framing around the cap was almost from everybody involved in the hearing was very much about how it would not cut into a fair rate of return from landlords. Yeah. Um, as opposed to this is how many people it's going to prevent from being evicted, sure, right, sure, sure. Uh, or being displaced. And sure. again, that speaks to some of the difficulty with the data. But still, you could you could glean the politics in the building kind of from that framing too. And not only that, I mean, y- yes, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know landlords having a lot of power in the legislature. I think that that's I think that that's true, um, certainly. But I also I think it's true that that. The leverage is theirs, and people shouldn't pretend like this doesn't exist. Exactly. I mean, they crushed, absolutely crushed, a rent control measure last year, and so their le- their willingness to deal, or they're coming from a very strong position. That even in Oregon, where we talked about this, you know, previously, where there was a, a similar rent cap measure that was passed, that there's no context of that, right? Um, and so the landlords have have said, "Look, we know how to win this," and they're right, and so. Their, you know, their, their, their incentives to come to the table, I think, are less than they were before. Yes. So um, a common denominator for both SB 50 and these tenant bills is the looming bogeyman that is Michael Weinstein. Why don't you explain how his presence is felt on both of these sets of legislation? Well, he's willing to spend a good amount of money, um, and he's willing to follow through on his promises to to do so, right? And so he doesn't like SB 50, is papering um, San Francisco with mailers, where Scott Wiener's from about that. Uh, and he's, you know, spent $25 million on the 2018 rent control initiative that failed, uh, filed for another one uh, this time. Um, and, uh, you know, so people know that he's going to follow through. And so he has uh, an argument both against SB 50 and, uh, frankly, um, against the current version of the t- some of these tenant bills because he doesn't believe that they're strong enough. Uh, and because he's willing to spend money on both of those things, is he makes sure his voice gets heard. He's important. Weinstein's mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk to him right now. We are here with Michael Weinstein, the leader of the AIDS, AIDS Healthcare Foundation in Los Angeles. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for being with us. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So uh, you're heavily involved in uh, state housing policy this year, uh, spending some money against uh, Senate Bill 50 and also filing another rent control initiative for 2020. Uh, Why? Well, the crisis in terms of affordability in California keeps getting worse and worse. I mean, between the uh, epidemic of homelessness and the affordability crisis in terms of people paying, you know, in many times in excess of 50 percent of their income, uh, it's the worst crisis facing California. Just in the last day, we see that um, the population trend in California is, you know, so many people leaving that the population is not uh, increasing. That's the lowest it's been uh, in history. So you see what's going on. So when when we're talking about SB 50, there tends to be criticisms kind of coming from different directions. Um, one sort of comes from Single-family homeowners arguing that the bill would irrevocably alter the character of their neighborhoods. Uh, another from anti-displacement groups are worried about the bill, that it would make things worse. Uh, the groups that you're involved with are arguing both of those points. And so I'm wondering, which is, from your perspective, which is the most concerning? Well, I think if you're going to address the issue of housing affordability, we, we approach it from three points of view, preserving communities call it the three Ps, preserving communities, protecting tenants, and producing affordable housing. Uh, SB 50 does none of those things. Um, So my primary concern is that uh, poor people or people of low income, you know, that sensitive uh, people of color communities are protected. You know, I grew up in New York City, and when I go back there today, it's a far less diverse and less interesting place than it was in my youth. And I think the same thing can be said of San Francisco. So you, you, you referenced uh, this anti-displacement argument, you know, uh, well aware that, that last year a, a number of those groups, uh, Western Center on Law and Poverty, uh, ACT LA, those sorts of organizations up and down the state were um, very much opposed to this, to this bill. Uh, this year so far, while they've expressed concerns, uh, they've taken a neutral position uh, sort of leaving your group um, kind of, uh, you know, no longer you know, being... there have been al- 35 groups that wrote to the committee saying, you know, tenant groups saying they, they, they did not like the direction this was going in. Um, sure, but... Very early in the game, but... And I think that with now, with Scott Weiner chairing the housing committee and having the ability to kill any bill he doesn't like, I think that's got people uh, concerned hmm. um, as well. But uh, there's plenty of people coming out against... Um, this bill, and in particular, you know, in San Francisco, you know, tenants together, the uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors, you know, and uh, and others, and then the LA City Council unanimously voted against it. Uh, you have uh, people uh, like uh, Zev Yaroslavsky, uh, who's you know well respected in this whole arena, who uh, calls it overreach. So I think that um, you know, there's mounting opposition. What about some of the inclusionary requirements that are that are in the bill now? I know uh, some of those details are going to be fully hammered out, but... They're insignificant, and they don't help the poorest of the poor. You know, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got, which is, which is basically San Francisco, you know, um, has seen a drastic decline in affordability. And this is more of the same. 
Um, I kind of want to get back to something you said about um, New York, where you're from, and then you referenced kind of the the density in San Francisco. Do, do you believe that if those places were less dense, that uh, they would be more affordable? No. Okay. Look, I fully embrace the idea of building more housing. But first of all, I would say, let's look at what we already have available. For example, SROs. I mean, there are hundreds of them, and they're not occupied, okay? Then look at the fact that we have, you know, so adaptive reuse should be the centerpiece of production rather than more luxury housing. You look at Big County Hospital. You look at the Sears building in East L.A. You look at all of these empty structures that could be made into housing. And AHF has put its money where its mouth is. I mean, we have now uh, five properties that we bought and rehabbed and put people into with more than 620 units just in the last year and a half. So That's I wanna, what happened. I, I want to ask about the low-income housing. Uh, th- there was a number that the Legislative Analyst Office put out a few years ago where they said if you wanted to build uh, housing uh, just for those who are paying more than half of their income on rent, uh, that would require a state allocation um, somewhere in the order of magnitude of 20 to $30 billion uh, a year, the uh, amount equivalent to what the state spends now on, on Medi-Cal. Do you think that that is the answer and we need to build? Absolutely not. That's not the answer. Look, AHF, in rehabbing these buildings, we're, we're spending an average of about $80,000. The city of Los Angeles is spending $550,000. We've been saying now for a couple of years that you cannot spend $500,000 plus in order to create these units. And those same estimates are being used at the state level. I mean, the whole small house movement is something that should be embraced. We need a ladder of affordability. You need something to get somebody off the street and then hopefully they can get back to work and they can climb that ladder. But affordability has to be defined in two different ways. How much rent can a person afford to pay? And how much does it cost to create that unit? So basically, you know, you could take that figure that the state came up with, and if you knock that 500000 down to 100000 which is perfectly feasible, then you can pr- produce five times as much. Do, do you think you could kind of do it that way without changing zoning regulations? Absolutely. I mean, these five buildings that we've bought and are in service today, um, didn't require any zoning changes. But, I mean, again, we're not going to solve it doing what we've been doing, <clears throat> which is to put all of our resources into the high end. There's no way that is going to improve the situation. So- and, the, and the reality is is that in this supermajority legislature, we cannot get any relief for tenants. I mean, that's shocking to me that the Democrats you know, dominate the legislature and you can't get out of the first committee um, something that helps existing renters to stay in place and to be able to afford where they live. It, is it shocking? Because it's now happened a couple times. Well, I mean, if you claim to be progressive, I don't see how you can um, you know, uh, refuse to support those bills. So um, there were a number of state lawmakers that have been, were critical of a mailer that you folks sent out uh, 
depicting James Baldwin uh, uh, and comparing uh, SB 50 to Negro removal in San Francisco. Uh, The leader of the uh, San Francisco NAACP called the ads insulting and said, and I'm reading a a quote, we don't need anyone to pimp African-Americans pain for petty political gain. Wondering how you respond to that criticism. Well, first I'll say that the NAACP um, was on the payroll of real estate in um, opposing Prop 10, the rent control initiative. But beyond that is James Baldwin was speaking specifically about San Francisco. The black population of San Francisco has declined drastically, as is the Latino population falling as a percentage of the total population. So it was totally on point. And, you know, uh, Scott Weiner can, you know, try to change the subject and get people who back him to say that um, – you know, they object to the mailer, but it's based on the facts. Do you regret any of that portion of your strategy? Because I, I think it did shift the conversation a lot towards, oh, wow, look at this mailer, as opposed to what's going on with SB 50. Well, it's not our only strategy. We sent out a mailer following that that identified Scott Weiner as the man from real estate. Um but that one got slightly less attention, I would say. Well, that's fine. But I mean, it's the truth. The truth is that the communities that are being most affected are poor and people of color communities. It's true also that the communities that are being targeted right now in Los Angeles, for example, are Crenshaw, historically black community, Boyle Heights, Highland Park, Lincoln Heights. All of these are communities, if nothing is done, will be largely uh, middle-class white communities. So well, I have a uh, thought experiment here. What, what if the bill took out... Um, yeah, this is uh, exactly where I was going to go. Any mention of sensitive communities, right? They're not touched at all, and instead uh, focused on increasing density in, say, uh, Westwood, right? Just around the, the, the transit line there. Would you, what, well, what would you think things. of the bill? Yeah. First of all, when you put luxury housing around transit areas where people... The people in those luxury buildings don't take transit... So therefore, you you actually, in Los Angeles, ridership on the buses and trains has gone down year after year after year. And that's because of gentrification. That's number one. Number two is is that I I still believe that local communities should have a say in planning and zoning. Could you – so I just want to be perfectly clear here, just kind of elaborating on what Liam said. If – sensitive communities were completely exempted from SB 50, you would still oppose it? We have taken a position that if 50% of the housing in the bill was uh, extremely low or low income, that we would support it. Gotcha. Uh, but but again, to be perfectly clear with, with the question that we've been asking... Just a pure exemption of sensitive communities, you'd still have objections to the bill yeah. based on the inclusion, the higher inclusionary requirement that you want, and some of the objections uh, simply around building taller in single-family neighborhoods. Correct. Okay. And also local control. What What is wrong with building a five-story building between two single-family homes? Well, I mean, if you if you hate zoning and planning, go to Houston or go to Bangkok or go to these other cities that have no planning. I mean, the cities that we cherish the most for how beautiful they are have zoning, right? 
I mean, the idea behind zoning is not to prevent development, but to do it intelligently. I mean, if you have a, a street like Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles, you know, uh, that's a high-rise street, and you can put up all the tall uh, buildings you want, and that's a good thing. But, um, you know, the idea, first of all, they're playing games because when you talk about these transit-oriented uh, areas, you're talking about, you know, half of the big cities in California. It's not some small area or some limited area. You are a fan of putting things on the ballot. If SB 50 becomes law, would you file an initiative to repeal it? I don't know that right now. That's too speculative. Okay. Uh, should we segue to the other big part of your week last week, <laughs> um, which was some of the tenant legislation? What was your reaction when you heard that Assembly Bill 36, a bill from uh, Richard Bloom from Santa Monica that would have reformed Costa Hawkins and allowed cities to expand rent control regimes in California, was withdrawn um, before it could be voted on? I was not the least bit surprised. I mean, that's the pattern we've been seeing all along. I mean, it's, you know, the apartment association and the realtors own Sacramento. That's why we went to the ballot the last time, and that's why we will go back to the ballot again. I mean, my greatest hope here is in our new governor. He has said that he wants uh, relief for renters, and he has said that he wants um, a bill put on his desk. And, you know, we've met with his office, and he's convened legislators and chaired a meeting to say, you know, how are we going to address this? I don't know specifically what he has in mind, but the fact that he's so clearly articulated that it needs to be part of a package of legislation, I think that's very, very promising. So I want to ask, uh, you you and I spoke, um, I say, about a month or so ago, um, and you told me that if California were to pass what the Oregon legislature did on rent caps, uh, you would not only oppose um, that measure, but you would run an initiative campaign against it. Is that that's still the case? Well, the issue is how much, right? Um, the Oregon bill was CPI plus seven. Mm-hmm. This is plus five. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, we'd like to see it lower, and we're discussing that with uh, Assemblyman Chu. The problem with the rent cap is it'll become the floor. And if you think about, let's say, you know, consumer pricing gets 2%, and you add 5%, 7%, that means you're essentially going to have people's rent doubling every 10 years. And a person on a fixed income or a person you know, working a minimum wage job, their income is not going up by 7% a year. I, I think part of the, the counterargument to that would be, well, look at what it is now, right? At least this is some type of protection against some of the most egregious rent hikes that we see and is perhaps more um, politically and practically achievable considering the opposition to tenant bills um, and, that, the, and the opposition to any proposed initiative. And the defeat of Prop 10. Yeah. Well, the initiative that we've filed has some major differences from Prop 10, which we believe will improve its chances. Plus, we're going to see a much different electorate in 2020. In the new initiative, first of all, we exempt all new construction, anything less than 15 years. 
Secondly, we say that a person can rent up to two of their own homes before it would cover uh, individual family homes or, or condos. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and we give some protection to landlords that when a rent control unit goes on the market, they can raise it by 15%. So we think those will address uh, a lot of the anti-arguments. I mean, basically, yes, we lost by a big margin, but all we have to do is get 9.5% more of the people to embrace our argument, um, and we think we have a great shot at that. Don't you expect a a similar uh, financial um, uh, uh, imbalance in in spending uh, than you did two years ago? 9.5% is not a small margin. Yeah, but I mean, the... They're going to have to um, fend off the split role initiative, which is a, the uh, amendment to Prop 13. They're going to have a lot on their plate. But again, we are taking the long view. You know, tenants need and deserve justice. And nothing short of um, cities and counties implementing rent control is going to deliver that. If it was, we wouldn't be in the situation we are now. So we we had a representative uh, from Public Advocates, um, a a low income uh, uh, advocacy. Uh, yeah, I know them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, group on our podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, the last episode, we asked them about you. Well, um, by the way, if I can interject, yeah, because she said she'd never met me, I. I was going to be in Sacramento. I called her up and I had breakfast with her. Okay. Oh, well, all right. So what? What'd you guys have? <laughs> <laughs> egg white salad? No, they didn't have that. Oh. It was just the scrambled eggs. Okay. Yeah. But uh, but she mentioned that uh, we asked her whether it made sense for 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 you to be involved uh, with a potential initiative uh, going forward, or whether groups like hers should be the ones um, sort of taking the lead. And she said, you know. Um, well, we'd prefer that if it, w- it would be us. Um, and, and I'm wondering what kind of reaction you have to that. Well, uh, she that said argument. to me that she thought that the single most important pressure on the legislature to act was our initiative. Um, and um, I think what she said was something about, you know, uh, me going it alone. But, yeah. but the bottom line was that we had more than 500 organizations supporting us. We had... You know, the California Democratic Party voted 185 to 4 to endorse us. Um, So we had a great coalition. And, um, you know, uh, we're going to keep the heat on. If there is a package combining SB 50 with um, some tenant legislation that you support, would, would you be satisfied by that? No. Okay. I mean, we have a principled objection to um, 50 on a variety of different levels. And unless it, it really became a good piece of legislation, we're not going to um, support it. Um, okay. Is, uh, that's about it for me, Liam. Yeah, Michael, is there anything else that you want to add or uh, touch on? Yeah, I'm just – I'll say – there will be change. It will come, whether it comes this year or next. And, you know, there's still two legislative sessions to bring about some kind of, uh, you know, uh, legislative solution short of an initiative. But 
also to your comment earlier, I mean, I think we may be a wild card, but I think people know that we're also deadly serious and that we're willing to put our money and our work where our mouth is, whether it's providing housing or whether it's sponsoring another initiative. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Thank you. Take care. We're here with Senator Nancy Skinner, a Democrat from Berkeley. Senator Skinner, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here. So uh, you have a couple of uh, uh, interesting housing bills this session. Do you want to talk us talk to us about uh, Senate Bill 330 and Senate Bill 18? Certainly. Well, SB 18, that one is, uh, we've got this incredible rise of homelessness in California, and all of us, I mean, nobody feels good about this circumstance to be to walk down the street in your community and see people living in doorways and on the street. And what the research shows is that our newly homeless since, say, 2015, these are people that were recently housed, and they have jobs, but they couldn't afford their rent. They hit one of those situations where they had an unexpected expense, and next thing you know, they just everything got behind. So what SB 18 would do is increase the funding California's Housing and Community Development Department already has an emergency rental assistance fund. It would increase the funding to that fund so that we can provide more emergency rental assistance to keep people housed. Just to clarify, there's no money amount in that bill yet, right? There's no Correct. number? Correct. Okay. That's always in the budget. But fortunately, the, um, our big city mayors, it's now a group of 14 mayors, from cities like San Francisco, L.A., Oakland, San Jose, uh, San Diego, all of them are in support. They are. They have a big ask uh-huh. to the governor and to the legislature for money to support their homeless services, but they've included in it emergency rental assistance. So I'm knocking on wood, hoping that the May revise will show some money, and if not, I'll just have to fight for it in the budget. <laughs> um, let's talk about SB 330, um, your other bill, which, honestly, Liam and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. We are surprised, and perhaps we're guilty of this. It hasn't got as much attention as some of the other That's out there. That's because it's so modest. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's logical. So I was on the Berkeley City Council. In uh, 91, when the Oakland Tunnel Fire, Oakland Berkeley Tunnel Fire happened, we lost over 3,000 units of housing in that terrible fire. And up until the recent fires, the last two years, that was the fire with the most loss of housing units in the state of California. And immediately after, and we see all these families who now no longer have a place to live, we immediately, Berkeley, Oakland, the other affected cities, we sped up our processes, we lowered our fees, and we lifted some rules to help get that housing replaced fast. So we responded to a crisis. California is in a housing crisis right now. So what 330 does is say, local governments, you have already zoned and planned and done sequidocs for a, you know, a good amount of housing. So let's just speed it up. Let's just do it. And What the bill does is for a 10-year period, it says respond to the emergency, process a permit within a year, and don't change the rules while you're processing it. So don't add new 
um, requirements on design review or other things. So it respects the design review you have, but don't add more. And no down zoning, no housing caps, and meaning from this point on. Um, and then let's try to kind of cap those fees. Let's not raise the fees just for a 10-year period so we can try to facilitate that housing we've already agreed to as quickly as possible. I think one of the more interesting parts of that bill is that it targets cities based on what rents actually are. Rents and costs. That's right. Whereas a lot of other housing bills um, will target cities based on whether they're, let's say, permitting enough housing to meet state-mandated goals. I'm interested in your thoughts on what pushback you've gotten from cities, if at all, about that component. Well, I've not gotten the pushback because we did a formula. We said, look, we're trying to respond to a crisis. So where is the crisis the worst? The crisis is the worst in those areas which have the lowest vacancy rates. In other words, the least amount of housing available and have experienced the highest rent increases and the highest housing purchase cost increases. So that's the formula we used. Um, you want to talk about SB 50? Yeah, I was going to going to go there, but get, go ahead. You ask. You start. Let's let's yeah, do it. Yeah. Um, so you are a co-author on yes. SB 50. As I was on 827. As you were on 827. Um, I'm curious. Uh, SB 50 has undergone a lot of changes recently. What do you make of those changes? Um, it, no bill comes through the legislative process unscathed, as I say. Sometimes the changes are are real improvements. Sometimes, eh. Now, there were a couple of improvements, I think. Actually adding the ability for buy-right, I think it's fourplexes in the bill. I thought that was great because while the bill is trying to get at our housing crisis, there's much criticism that it's, uh, well, there's been criticism about 827 and others that it's insensitive to the discriminatory nature of many communities to the fact that you could um, help, uh, you could, it could cause displacement or further gentrification. And when you look at the history of real estate and housing policies in California and in the U.S., basically single family zoning, that is your, that's the poster child for discriminatory zoning. It was written to exclude people for economic reasons and race reasons. So I loved this inclusion of the fourplex because it allows us to get at some of that exclusion and gives other people the same type of access to the neighborhoods that have the great parks, the great schools, and other you know great um, assets. Do, do you think, though, that building fourplexes in, say, Palo Alto would allow for uh, people of lower means to live i mean like actual like uh, say cooks or 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 line workers or uh retail well, workers to live in cooks Palo Alto? Or line workers that don't have access to the good neighborhoods anymore sure it's basically in the bay area any family that doesn't have a minimum two hundred thousand dollar income doesn't have access to a decent neighborhood anymore that's what the situation that's how bad our housing crisis is now if we look at seattle and this isn't just about fourplexes, but Seattle really took on trying to increase their number of units quite seriously over the last 10 years. And they really significantly increased the number of units. And you see rents and purchase prices going down. What is causing our high prices is scarcity. So 
what I'm and many, many others are hopeful is that if we get that increase, we can start seeing prices go down. And I'm not, I have no delusions that, look, market rate, yes, it will be expensive. But over time, if we can eliminate the scarcity, our other prices will go down. Um, so you represent uh, portions of Alameda County. Um, the new configuration of SB50 will treat Alameda County differently than Marin County. Do you think that there is a legitimate policy substantive uh, reason for that distinction? Well, I was not privy to the conversations that Senator McGuire and Senator Weiner had, um, but I have not been... Well, let's say I have not as much welcome, and I'm not saying that Senator Weiner welcome, but if I watch some of the things that have happened in housing policy um, pushed by some of our Marin reps, so we're talking the assembly member who represents Marin and the senator, you know, there's been a continued push to try to uh, continue to allow Marin County to uh, benefit from their very exclusionary policies. You know, you think about uh, transit. You think you think about so many things that Marin has been able to basically say no to, so that they can uh, exclude people, um, which is not uh, not the um, set of values I have. But clearly, their representatives are very good at protecting their interests. For you to be a co-author on this, you're going to hear from a lot of your constituents um, who aren't fans of increased density. And they're going to say, hey, um, over there in Marin County, they have Right, less- they don't have to. Well, if 50, if we look at 50, the basic premise of it compared to 330, and you notice that in my bill, 330, I'm basically, it's independent of transit, but it's saying, hey, local governments, you've already zoned and, and allowed for in all your planning docs, your general plan, everything, a certain amount of housing, and when an application comes in, Permit that housing. Don't delay it. Don't mess with it. Now, the premise of 50 is let's be smart and let's increase some density around transit. Well, when you look at Marin, it doesn't have much transit. Uh-huh. So if you are just going from the point of view of the premise of the bill, then, you know, uh, it's harder to, if you're basing your density on transit, to put it where there's not transit. So that's one aspect. All right. Do you think SB 50 um, can pass and should pass without being combined in a broader um, housing package that includes tenant protection bills? Well, I was very pleased to see that both Assemblymember Bonta and Assemblymember Chu's bills, those are AB 1481 and AB 1482, got out of the Assembly Housing Committee, and those combined are a uh, just cause eviction protections and a rent cap. And I, I, am, I would really, well, I'm not going to say I'm, you know, that I think it's going to sail through the assembly. Those are very, very important bills, and they're needed. And if we look at what the governor said during his state of the state, and I believe even during his budget presentation, he talked about the need to help protect against displacement and to respect that um, as we are trying to increase our supply, that we don't want to have these negative impacts on the folks who live in communities now. And those are two bills that really, really will help that. And they, but they're, they need to be together. You can't have one without the other. 
um, and I really hope they pass. So what do you think might be different? I mean, last year, uh, when we look at the, the Just Cause bill, uh, it got less than 20 votes in the assembly floor. Um, what do you think might be different about uh, this year that, 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 that might, might lead to a different result? Well, partly the governor's expression of interest and, um, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, more, there's just been so much more conversation about the impact of this housing crisis. And I think every member has, it's not just their constituents, has family and friends who've been impacted. So I'm hoping that the, even those personal experiences will have an impact, will help affect them, the discussion and thus the votes. Okay. What, what effect uh, uh, do you think uh, Michael Weinstein and the AIDS Healthcare Foundation has on the housing debate at the Capitol? Well, his attacks on my colleague, Senator Weiner, I, I feel like it's really been over the top and quite, um, quite wrong, quite unfair, quite wrong. Um, now, all those ads he's directed in San Francisco, they, you know, those of us in the Capitol, unless somebody uh, sends them to us, we don't see them. <laughs> so that's not impacting the Capitol. Now, whatever organizing work he may be doing in the L.A. Basin area that may then um, increase the number of constituents who might uh, cry out about the bill, that could affect um, the, you know, how... Senator Weiner's chances in terms of interacting with those colleagues. But because of just how unreasonable and over-the-top um, Weinstein's approach has been to Senator Weiner personally in Senator Weiner's own district, I think when Senator Weiner displays those to his colleagues, none of us, I mean, we all, we're all in the same boat. And if, if you imagine that happening to you, you start to want to really defend your colleagues. So it might really backfire on Weinstein. How about uh, his uh, work on rent control? He has filed, you know, he was, as you know, the proponent of Prop, uh, Prop 10 last year, uh, has filed for another initiative for 2020 and, and says that the bills, the Bonta and Chu bills that you referenced uh, aren't strong enough. Um, how does that affect the, the conversation from that side? Um. You know, maybe his uh, the fact that he's going to put another um, ballot measure on can assist Pontus and Jews bill, but Prop 10 lost by a significant amount, and it hasn't seemed to the threat of another one doesn't seem to be worrying at least what I've heard really worrying folks. So um, I think he has to be careful about his threats. I mean, clearly a continued pressure can help negotiations, but, you know, one has to, as they say, one can't just cry wolf all the time. Um, Berkeley has been this really interesting hotbed for some of the conflicts around getting new housing approved. I'm, I'm curious, um, what's the... Uh, most memorable message that you've gotten from a constituent opposing new housing? Well, I wouldn't say it was a constituent. It was my own mayor. <laughs> when I um, co-authored 827 last year, my uh, mayor, Aragin, said that Skinner had declared war on Berkeley's neighborhoods. Had you? No. 
No. So I mean, well, I, yeah. so I'm, I won't say that I'm the only um, legislator in this kind of category, but I'm a strong proponent of rent control. I authored, I was part of the coalition that not only authored, but collected the signatures and fought for Berkeley's rent control laws. And yet I'm also a huge backer of increasing our supply. And it's, you know, do I love the fact that we are dependent on that level of market economics that we, that our housing costs, something that I think is a basic human right, is so dependent on whether, uh, you know, that these basic uh, whatever. But we, it's a fundamental reality that if there's scarcity, costs go up. And we've allowed scarcity. And it's not just the city of Berkeley, but all up and down the state, we have not allowed for the amount of housing that we need, and especially not near those job centers. And Berkeley and every single city in my district needs to do better. Um, where do you live in, in Berkeley? Do you live near the North Berkeley? I live in the stop? Flatlands. Where are the Flatlands? That means I live west of Sacramento and south of University. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what goes through your mind when you uh, approach the North Berkeley Bard Stop, which is... Well, I used to live over there. I was the... I, when I first got elected to the Berkeley City Council, the elections were citywide. Then they created districts, which was a veiled recall, around public housing, believe it or not. Someday we have to have a podcast just about that. Berkeley has district elections because neighborhoods in Berkeley opposed some low-income housing that the city council I was on was promoting, which got built. But anyway, so the districts got created, and my district that, that I had to run in was the North Berkeley district that went from west of Martin Luther King Street or Old Grove to the freeway from University to the Albany border. So that was the North Berkeley BART station, and I lived over there. And every time I would walk around my neighborhood and around the BART station, I'd think to myself, what a waste. <laughs> what? Why is there no, uh, you know, not enough housing around here? So I've had that opinion for 25, 30 years. Yeah, and for the context of our listeners who may not know, there's a gigantic parking lot. Like it's, it's well, a, there's it's, not it's, only a gigantic parking lot. There is um, the North Berkeley BART station is two blocks away from University Avenue, right. which is one of the main thoroughfares of Berkeley. And while Berkeley, we pride ourselves, you know, we're different. We don't like, you know, we don't have many chain stores or whatever. <laughs> University Avenue is a strip mall. And uh, <laughs> University Avenue could be so much more lively and beautiful with uh, four- to six-story or even six- to eight-story buildings up and down it, which would give you the number of residents you'd need to have great foot traffic to support all the family-owned businesses that Berkeley so prides itself, which we so rarely have now. Yeah, once they put that gap on Telegraph, that was, that was the end of it for me. <laughs> Um, so la- last question, I just want to get back to SB 50 real quick. So um, kind of on, uh, for those that fear the, the possible um, gentrifying effects of SB 50, what's the argument against exec- exempting sensitive communities entirely from SB 50? The argument is we have a housing crisis and the f- growth of homelessness, the 15 percent higher homeless we have since 2015 are people that have full-time jobs and lived somewhere. They're not mentally ill. They're not addicted. What are they not in? Housing. 
because they couldn't afford it and because there wasn't any they could afford near the jobs they work in. we got to have housing everywhere. Senator, anything else you want to add or make sure that our listeners are aware of? No, I think we got it. All right. Thank you so much, Senator Skinner. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing journalist with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at M11Reports. And I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dillon Liam. All right. See you next time.